From WXXI News, I'm Jasmine Singer, and this is Environmental Connections. Today's environmental connection began while I was talking with a friend who is the mother to a young adult son. She spoke about how the distant horizon of climate change was so much less urgent when her son was conceived. She totally adores her son, don't get me wrong, but she said she isn't sure that she could bring a child into this rapidly transforming world if she were to start a family now. Today, we are untangling a decision as old as life itself, yet increasingly complicated by the realities of our changing planet, whether or not to have children. Historically, this wasn't always seen as a deliberate choice, but more of a natural outcome of life. Yet advancements in our understanding and the science of reproduction have transformed this into a conscious decision for so many. And it is a profoundly personal one. It is intersecting with our deepest instincts, our hopes for the future, and ethical considerations about the world we're creating. But with the challenges of climate change, the question of whether or not to have kids gains new layers of complexity and urgency. The tangible effects of our environmental crisis have made many of us ponder the implications of bringing a child into this world, a world on the edge of significant ecological shifts. This internal conflict, it, it, it goes against uh, this biological drive that is clashing with our conscientious hesitations that sometimes some of us face. I have certainly faced it. I know that some of our guests today have faced it. Maybe if you're listening to this, you have also faced it. In today's episode, we delve into eco-anxiety and its influence on the decision to become a parent. How does one balance the innate desire to nurture against the sobering realities of climate change and resource depletion and the uncertain future that these conditions foretell for the next generation? Oh, I'm so excited about this episode. Joining us today are thought leaders and environmental advocates and parents who have navigated this complex terrain. They bring with them stories of hope, of resilience, and the thoughtful considerations that have informed their choices in an era marked by environmental turmoil. In the studio with me today, we have Marilla Gonzalez, the woman behind Marilla's Mindful Supplies, a low-waste refill store that offers plastic-free and ethically produced products for a sustainable life. Welcome, Marilla. Thank you for having me. I get many, many of my products at your store. I'm so yes. excited that you are here. <laughs> Marilla knows a lot of things about me. We'll just say that. I was going to say, our deodorant's holding up just fine really right good. now. Really, yeah. really We're good. great. We're fine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> We've got E. Turpin, the community development specialist at Rochester Ecology Partners, where she works to connect people to environmental resources in the community. Thank you for being here, E. Thanks so much for having me, Jasmine. I'm so grateful to be here and, and to hear the different perspectives on the panel. I am so grateful that you're here, too, also because you're a server at Red Fern, which is one of my favorite restaurants in Rochester. <laughs> True, yes. Yes. And Neely Kelly, an experienced campaign director, renowned for her impactful work in the renewables and environmental industry. Her expertise spans strategic campaign planning, community engagement, and equity and inclusion, making her a formidable force in advocating for sustainable change. Thank you for being here, Neely. I'm so glad you are. 
Thanks so much for having me, Jasmine. Such <clears throat> an important topic. And I know it's something you've actually discussed before on Connection several years back. So we'll get to that because I'm very curious how things <laughs> have changed for you. And joining me virtually today is attorney and advocate Carter Dillard. Carter is the co-founder of the organization Fair Start Movement, a human rights-based, child-centric, and quote, zero baseline family planning model. Welcome, Carter. Thank you so very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Before I jump into questions, I want to read a few stats regarding the environmental implications of having kids. The global population is expected to reach 11 billion by 2100, posing significant risks to environmental sustainability and human well-being. And despite investments in renewable energy, current efforts are deemed insufficient to counteract the negative climate impacts of rapid population growth. Some of the environmental consequences of unchecked population growth include flooding, disease proliferation, oxygen depletion, wildlife extinction, and the threat of an uninhabitable planet. It's not just in the movies. This is something that many of us are, are thinking about and contending with. And all of that underscores the gravity of our discussion on parenting in an age of ecological uncertainty. As we unravel the complexities of this deeply personal but universally significant decision, let's also seek some rays of hope, some pathways of action. So again, thank you all so much for being here. And listeners, we are going to want to hear from you too. So if you have a question for any of my guests, if you want to weigh in, please call in 844-295-TALK. That's 844-295-8255. If you're local, you can call 263-9994. And you can also email us at connections at wxxi.org. Okay, let's get started. So Marilla, I would love to start with you. Could you share with us what motivates your environmental activism, especially in the context of owning your low-waste store? Something that motivates me is the ability to enact change on an individual level. I think for a lot of people that can be an intimidating thing or even discouraging, but for me, it feels very empowering to be able to look around and walk down the street and pick up a few pieces of litter and then you have a cleaner street. And you know, the more people we can get on that bandwagon, the cleaner our streets become. And that is very empowering to me. And I grew up in an area sandwiched between two very large landfills that continue to grow higher and higher. And while there's a lot that goes into those landfills growing, on an individual level, I was realizing that I was contributing quite a bit and realizing that by making a few simple changes, I could cut back so much was very motivating and so motivating that all of a sudden I had my own store and had a lot of plastic free products on the shelf that made that easier for other people. So that's the, the individual power really motivates me. And you have a second location now too, right? Your first was in Geneva. Is that right? And your second, the one I go to is in the South Wedge. <laughs> yes. Our first location is 438 Exchange Street in Geneva, New York, which is right between those two little big landfills right? <laughs> and then our second location we recently opened at 661 South Ave. Amazing well thank you so many more questions for you but let's turn to E a community engagement specialist with Rochester Ecology Partners 
A, I have a question for you. What drives your passion for helping people access nature in their lives? Because I know that's a big focus of the work that you do when you're not at Redfern. Yeah, absolutely. And so at Rochester Ecology Partners in particular, I'm focusing a lot on connecting individuals and groups to each other and to nature so that we can drive collective action um, around um, connection to nature, around um, reducing the impacts of environmental injustice, um, and around climate change in particular. Um, is my interest. And so um, I'm also working on a project around nature-based learning and health. Um, and so really connecting people to the idea that being in nature and learning in nature and connecting with each other in nature is helpful for our mental health, our emotional health, and our physical health. Um, and I also just really, I'm a connector by nature and now I'm a connector to nature. And so really finding ways to connect people to the earth and the earth to us, um, I think is is really my driver. Wow, I love all of that. My my wife and I moved here from Los Angeles and we were just, I, before that I was in Manhattan for 20 years and I could not believe the green space mm -hmm. and the nature accessible like everywhere. And it's such a breath of fresh air, literally. So thank you so much. Before we ask, you a few more questions. Uh, Neely, is, as an environmentalist and a parent, tell me about your relationship with your environmentalism and with climate change. Just where do you stand? <clears throat> well, I always have to start that until I was in my early 20s, I was a denier. Um, mm -hmm. I don't like to use that term, actually. It's more like just didn't understand the science of climate change. And um, what sort of moved me, I was, I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Central Africa and witnessed firsthand the, the scale of ecological devastation that was happening as the forests were being logged. Um, but it was, you know, I was young and I came home, I got married, we had two children. And at the time, climate change, environmental was not a consideration in our decision to start our family at all. Um, but I saw an inconvenient truth and thought, huh, things aren't great, um, but we've got, we've got about 100 years, so we'll be fine. We'll be all right. We've got time. Humanity is, like, resilient, and we'll, you know, I don't have to worry about that right now. I have two very young children very close together. And then we were living in uh, New Haven, Connecticut, and Hurricane Irene hit, um, was coming up the coast, and I think it was 2011. And we actually made reservations to go to, to, to leave the coast and go to Albany. Ironically, we ended up not. Ironically, Albany flooded um, catastrophically from Hurricane Irene that year. Um, we never even lost power. Um, and we were just a couple miles from the beat, from the ocean sound. And then a year later, we were in Cambridge, Cambridge Massachusetts, and it was Superstorm Sandy. And those two superstorms, like megastorms, back to back, were an eye opener for me. And I had these two, they were preschoolers at the time. And I was like, I have to do something. I had done nothing. And I got involved in the climate movement and um, very actively engaged for a number of years, seven, I think, and was really you know, working with mothers um, to push for clean energy policies, stop fossil fuel infrastructure and investments, um, and left that left that 
career and am now working in the renewables industry and am just really deeply committed to ensuring we live we leave a habitable planet for mm. all future generations. Yeah, it's it is a deeply personal thing for so many people and you know I I always say a lot of people when they say well as a parent I really deeply care I can imagine, and I am personally not a parent. Well, I am a parent, but my, my children are four-legged and furry, and there are many of them. But I think that people like me who are 40 plus and don't have children are oftentimes caring very much about your children too. And that is one of the things we're going to get into. Carter, let's turn to you. Could you explain the Fair Start Movement's mission and why you believe family planning is pivotal in addressing climate change and inequality? Sure, I mean, the, the organization is based on research that traces the climate crisis back to decisions made at the United Nations level, middle of the 20th century around family planning policy that did, did not ensure sustainable or equitable families. And so an alternative would be to base family planning systems and policies on child equity, birth and developmental equity. So basing it on trying to achieve an outcome that gives children a fair start, both ecologically and socially in life. And um, this, the impact of this change would, would really outweigh most of the other changes we could make in terms of climate policy. Okay, and Carter, sticking with you for just a moment, your white paper, which my stats at the top of the show were primarily derived from, states that the prevalent family planning model right now, it focuses on parental choice without consideration for the rights and well-being of prospective children in the community, and that this lacks a human rights perspective and contributes to unsustainable population growth. Wow, I would love if you could speak about that a little bit more. Sure, I mean, I, I think we think about legitimate political systems um, they normally we would just assume that they have to comply with some list of human rights, um, the right to speak freely, to hold elections, maybe uh, rights based on gender uh, or uh, even, you know, rights to emigrate or immigrate. But the, it, the reality is that the people who would that list of rights would refer to, they don't fall from the sky. Uh, they are born and developed. And ideally, they have to be born and developed in certain ways that creates a, a group of people who can have human rights. That means that the first rights are actually children's rights. Uh, and so if you want to talk about legitimate political systems, you would have systems that first ensure every child their rights, things like the list of rights you see in the Children's Rights Convention. And you couldn't do that uh, if you didn't have family planning systems that were meant to ensure that. You would just have children in conditions that violated their rights and then try to do the best you can. It's what we do today. So uh, I think one thought about changing the way we plan families is to a more collective system where we are sharing resources and making decisions around what would be best for children. That's really the, the core of it in order to have legitimate political systems because what good is a list of human rights in a superheating world where people are dying by the tens of millions? It's, uh, it's, it's like we ignored the context and that's exactly what happened. 
Okay, thank you. I do have a, a, a lot more questions about all of that, but I want to pose a philosophical question to my panelists. <laughs> I would love to know what you think we owe future generations. Marilla, can we start with you? I know it's a big question, but it's something that no, I think... No, that's I'll so easy, Jasmine. <laughs> I mean, that's just a softball. Uh, <laughs> I, I think we owe future generations good stewardship mm -hmm. and doing our best to model that. It's not always going to be perfection. It never will be. But showing an honest effort to take care of what you have I think is a good model for the generations ahead. We're always going to be able to point to the generations behind us and say, well, they didn't know anything. Right. You do that for my generation. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, the there are certain ethics that come from the generations behind us that model for us so that we are able to move forward. And I think good stewardship and coming at things honestly and trying to do our best are a very good way to distill that beautifully said beautifully said E Thanks. what do you think about that what do we owe future generations I'm thinking of a few things here and I think particularly in my work around connecting youth and, and watching youth connect to nature um, I think we we owe them access to to healthy green spaces spaces where they can play and, and be themselves outside and not you know, have the impact of um, unhealthy air um, on their on their bodies while they're just being kids. Um, and I think also we owe them, I, I think kind of leaning a little bit on what Marilla said, um, I, I like to, to come at my life as like, I, I really want to live collectively in a way that like I have people in my community that are friends or acquaintances or just community members that have skills that they can share with me and I can share with them. And so as we face ecolo ecological disaster and, and we're more impacted by climate change, we can come together and share those skills. We don't need to, to live individually, um, even if that's where, you know, in our country, our mindset you know has been for so long. I think we owe um, the younger generations a shift in that mindset um, and, and sharing those skills like like growing food and and sharing food and and um, taking care of our planet in different ways and, and coming together in, in different uh, more equitable ways as well i think is something we owe our our younger our younger people very cool it's ve like we're, we can be in sync we can mm -hmm. have a, a a synergistic relationship with people around us with the mm -hmm. earth is that kind of what you're definitely saying yeah love it amazing and Neely, what do you think about that? What do we owe future generations? So I was thinking about this on, on sort of two different two different ways. One is a society, as a collective, as a globe, global you know, humanity, um, human civilization, and as individuals. And I think, for me personally, I you know to do everything in my power, um, which will vary from person to person, to ensure the planet are children, all future generations inherit, um, is habitable. And not only habitable, but where they can thrive. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not a survival. It's like th thrive and survive, like um, what E was, was saying. Um, and and so just, yeah, there's there's that. And then, and then collectively, it's sort of the similar thing, just how, how do we actually go about doing it? But mm. I, I do think we owe um, all future generations the uh, that that and the this 
the skills and abilities to, to carry on because as you mentioned in your brilliant intro, um, there, there is such rapid change. We don't have all the answers, but, but instilling the skills and the abilities for future gener our generations now and, and beyond uh, the skills to adapt mm -hmm. and thrive. What do we do about it? That is a really great question. And Carter, I'm going to turn to you, but I have a slightly different question for you. Your organization states that a shift toward a model that prioritizes the rights and welfare of children, aiming for smaller, more sustainable family sizes and equitable resource distribution is essential for addressing these challenges. So to Neely's point, what are you suggesting people do? Yeah, I mean, so we shouldn't be in this position. Uh, and the reality is that the extreme wealth that exists in the world today, you know, the, the top 10% of the, the, uh, the, the greatest concentrations of wealth made that money because they didn't have to pay the costs of ensuring children's rights and they didn't pay the ecological costs of that wealth. So specifically, they owe that money to young women uh, young would-be parents who are trying to plan to have their children in a way uh, that would ensure those children, as Neely said, to thrive. Uh, that may mean delay. It may mean, in some places, relocation. Um, and it will definitely mean giving those kids resources like GMI, healthcare. So specifically, we owe climate reparations to people that will be parents in order to plan their families in a way that not only reduces the impact those families will have, but it really overrides the property rights of the wealthy we're taking that money from because they owe it uh, just for us to constitute a, a future you know, society. And a, a very specific way to talk about this, the United States today, we're very familiar with the child tax credit and very wealthy families can earn the credit for every child they have uh, down to, to families that don't make a lot of money. In reality, wealthy families should earn no money for children they have and the amounts should probably be quadrupled for children uh, the families of children who would make the least and that program could be tied into programs that encourage delay so that's an idea of redistributing wealth to ensure child uh, equality of opportunity uh, while also trying to mitigate the environmental impact so that's a long-winded answer but that's the specific way it could be done Okay, well, thank you. There, there is a lot I want to untangle with that. But Carter, I have a personal question for you. There is a reason I'm asking this. Do you mind sharing your age? 50. I'm, I'm, I'm an old guy. Okay, so we've got 50. You represent, I just think this is interesting. So you represent 50s. We represent 40s. Mm -hmm. We've got 30s with Marilla and 20s with E. And I just think that that's worth pointing out because this is an intergenerational issue. It is not just young people like E who are thinking about it. <laughs> it's old people like us. <laughs> uh, and if you're just tuning in, by the way, I'm Jasmine Singer. You are listening to Environmental Connections. No, I am not Evan Dawson, but you are in the right place. And today we're discussing climate change, climate anxiety, and having children, whether to have them, whether not to have them, if you are having them, how to kind of lower the footprint. E, I'd love to turn to you as sort of our, our resident young person on the panel. <laughs> Can you tell us your thinking around having children or not having children and what the path was to your decision? Yeah. Um, I, I hope my mom listens to this. I'm definitely going to send it to her. <laughs> um, because for, I'd say, 
probably more than a decade I've been saying I'm, I'm not going to have kids. And there have been many people in my life, family members, you know, other people that I meet that are older than me that are like, oh, you'll change your mind someday. Or, oh, who's going to take care of you when you're older? Um, you know, who, who's going to share the joy of life with you as, as you age? Um, and I think kind of speaking to my point that I made earlier about wanting to live more collectively and, and in sync um, with others and with the earth, I, I think you know, to, to answer that, like, who am I going to grow old with? Or, you know, who's going to take care of me when I'm older? My goal is to, to be in community in a way where I um, have people that care about me and that care about my well-being and we can live in reciprocity and take care of each other and share our skills in, in, in a way where I don't need to rely on a child to take care of me because is that their job? I don't really know. Um, and so coming from a place of like, um, I, I, I've kind of always thought that I didn't really want children or maybe one day might adopt one, but um, ultimately that's a decision that I want to make for myself and not feel obligated to. And I think, especially as I started to learn more um, about climate change and ecological disaster and about late stage capitalism and about our society in general and, and how hard it can be um, on people, um, I started to think more about that obligation that people like to put on, on me as, as a woman. Um, and especially like it, a Puerto Rican woman. Also, my grandma had 16 siblings. She was one of 16. And, and so, you know, her saying to me, you know, I had all of these siblings. What are you going to do with without, you know, 16 kids kind of attitude? Um, I just want to make that decision for myself and also want to consider um, the impact that eco anxiety would have both on me as a potential parent and also on my children. Um, would be children, I guess. I don't really know. <laughs> sure. And and you said at the beginning, you hope your mom's listening. To mm -hmm, this. Mm -hmm. Your mom wants to know if you're going to be taking care of her when she's old. So yes. there's that. Yes. <laughs> and then secondly, I think you told me in, in a chat mm -hmm. that people have told you it's a phase that you're mm -hmm. going through. So how does that feel when people tell you that? Mm, that's a good question. It feels like almost like invalidating um, in a way of like, I'm not smart enough to be empowered in that decision um, that I've known about for a while and has kind of, um, there's been iterations to it. Like I, I didn't know that I had eco-anxiety at the time when I first started saying I'm, I'm not gonna have kids. And I think it has compounded my decision. Um, but it, it has been invalidating, but I think over time I, I've been like, okay, this, this can be a decision that I can make with my body mm. and for my own reasons. And I don't really have to explain it, even though I'm, I'm here on environmental right. connections <laughs> yeah. explaining it. Well, I'll tell you when I was in my mid twenties, there were a few things people told me were a phase mm -hmm. too. That's for another show, <laughs> but let's just say it's not. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Marilla, I would love to turn to you. You own a, a zero waste store or low waste. It's called Marilla's Mindful Supplies. <laughs> I encourage everyone to go there. You have a slightly different take on the possibility of having children. You don't have them currently, right? Only a four-legged. Okay, okay. I don't have any children right now. Uh, we may, though. We, we definitely are considering that. Who's to know what's in the cards? Um, but I come from a family of five. I come from an Italian family, Big, lots of big families. Um, and although I'm not really, I'm not one of those per people who have an exact amount of children, 2.5 kids that I want, I, I do think we will. And my hope is, in thinking about the impact of that decision, 
is to raise more people that care about taking care of the planet and can adapt to the situations and can give people hope. And so I think if you're coming at it with a level of responsibility for the kind of person that you're going to bring into the world, I think that counts for something. And that's kind of where our mm-hmm. headspace is around that. And I think that your perspective on that mirrors a lot of people, especially people around your age. I find it interesting that E brought up the possibility of adopting. Is that something that you have also considered? Oh, for sure. For sure. We have some dear friends that have adopted and it's such a beautiful, it can be such a beautiful process. And there are so many children in need and there are so many people who can't have children of their own. It's a wonderful way to solve multiple solutions. Yeah. And of course, I know that the that the uh, world of fostering children and adopting children is is rife with a lot of issues. It's a whole nother. Yeah. It's a whole other. <laughs> it's a whole other episode. <laughs> right. Exactly. But I do often find that when I listen to episodes in the mainstream media that discuss this, that adoption isn't mentioned. And I'm always perplexed by that. It's a great solution. I feel sustainably. Um, these people already exist and a lot mm-hmm. of them don't have a lot of options or um, opportunities and right. you know adoption is a great yeah especially thing. for those who have the means for it exactly which is a sad statement but again another show okay right. let's turn to Neely <laughs> so Neely as I mentioned you were on Connections with Evan Dawson about five six years ago ish discussing something a very similar topic and at the time your kids were what in middle school age I would say about that so yes. they're how old are they now uh junior and senior in high school okay wow that's a lot <laughs> you need a hug All right. they're wonderful yes I am sure they are I'm just curious how has your perspective changed since 16 years ago or 18 years ago when you first had a child? If you, and I, I know it goes without saying that you love them very much. It's like my friend who I mentioned at the beginning. Is this a choice you would make now? It's a tough question. Yes. Um, five years ago when I was asked this question, my immediate answer was no. I would, not, I would choose not to have children. Um, and it was largely due to just the gloom and doom I felt and the eco-anxiety about bringing, you know, making the conscious decision to bring a new life into this world that was rapidly collapsing. And here we are, you know, five, six years later, and things are much worse and getting much worse. And I would not be so quick to say no now. Um, mm. Because I think there is hope. I think, I mean, there, there is hope. There has to be hope otherwise. We should just go live under a rock, um, <laughs> which I am not going to do. Um, and I don't. I hope. I hope people. I hope people do not, um, because I've. You know, and I have. This is not a topic we really bring up with friends. It's kind of a tough topic. Um, and there, you know, I've talked to friends like children are joy and hope. Like, why would we not want to continue that if we're not? Um, if we're, we're not having kids because we have no hope for the future, then what are we doing? <laughs> you know? Um, and then there are other people who are like, I don't, you know, I don't want to, the carbon footprint increase children, right? I don't want to have, because that is a, um, so anyway, all of this is to say, as I mentioned earlier, this was not a consideration 18 years ago. 
as a parent, it does weigh heavily on my mind the, you know, what my children will be inheriting. And I do not know what I would do if I were in the position to make the decision today. That's fair. As a non-parent, it also weighs on me heavily where your kids are going to spend their future. It's not only to me an issue of bringing a kid into this world because of the footprint, but to me, I think about the concern of the world that they will be living in and the realities that they will be facing and the inequities that are associated with those realities. I find it fascinating, Neely, that you say that this is not something you talk about with your friends. Carter, is this something you talk about with yours? Constantly. (laughs) (laughs) So Carter, With the understanding that reducing the global population could ease environmental pressures, how does the Fair Start movement propose to balance this with the innate human desire for reproduction? I mean, I actually think they're consistent because parents don't want to just reproduce. I mean, they want to have and raise children in conditions where those children will be happy and safe. And so if you can connect that ideal um, with policies that actually make it possible. Um, and again, three, three easy, easy policies could be, well, uh, kids should have equality of opportunity. So some kids born with billionaire trust funds and other kids born into starvation, that's not okay. Uh, they're, both parent sets should have been operating in different conditions so that didn't happen. Secondly, you may wanna say delay is a way to reduce family size. So we want to assume that everyone would be given a chance to really think it through. Maybe the average age at which people are having their kids goes into the mid twenties. And the third thing might be migration. Where's a safe place to have kids? And that's not just, well, you know, coastal Lagos, Nigeria is going to be flooded uh, in 10 years. It may be that, well, I live in a food desert with a horrible educational system and high crime. Uh, Maybe there are reasons that I, would want to have my kid in a better community. So I think the the idea is to match the ideal of the future we want with family planning incentives that make it happen, recognizing that quite frankly, the extreme wealth owes us that money. Mm -hmm. It's not not up for debate. That was Carter Dillard from the Fair Start Movement. We're going to take a a brief pause and we'll be back in just a minute to discuss more on eco-anxiety and having kids. We will be taking your calls after the break. Be right back. I'm Jasmine Singer. Join us for the second hour of Environmental Connections, where we'll be pouring over the impact of climate change on rainfall patterns. We'll navigate through stormy topics like innovative flood defense strategies and the role of community action in weathering these changes. Catch it all on the second hour of Environmental Connections. Welcome back to Environmental Connections. I'm Jasmine Singer. Today, we are discussing a topic that is deeply personal and yet has a lot of universal implications, whether or not to have kids based on eco-anxiety and what's going on with climate change. And when we do have kids, how can we still continue to set them up and everyone else up for a healthy and sustainable future? Uh, I know that we have a lot of callers, so we're going to bring Robert on the line. Robert from Fairport is with us. Robert, welcome to Environmental Connections. Are you there? Yeah, thanks for taking my call. At the beginning of the segment, you mentioned population growth and, and, you know, worries about this and, and 
it's it's ironic because just two weeks ago the Wall Street Journal published a story about China's collapsing fertility rate. The current population in China, and that's one of two countries in the world that have over a billion people, is 1.4 billion people right now. By the end of the century, they're predicting that the Chinese population will be 525 million people. That's a decline of 875 million people. It's like losing two and a half uh, entire United States of America countries. And that's happening right now. So population decline is a much bigger issue than population growth. Okay, well, thank you so much for that. Carter, would you like to respond, Robert? I mean, I think it depends what you value. Um, the Wall Street Journal would consider a population decline a problem because those are cheap workers, hungry consumers, um, and a system where they can build factories and make a lot of money. So if that's what you value, that's a problem. But the, the United Nations intervened in family planning systems in order to reduce growth. So the idea was that growth would arc and then come down to avoid catastrophic problems and things that other people would value like nature, equity, community, happy children. That's the world that the United Nations, because of human rights, said we should deserve and get. The problem is not some absolute set of numbers about 11 or 8 or 4. The problem is that we arced over atmospheric carrying capacities and other carrying capacities. So we're in a catastrophic situation uh, because we cross those thresholds, even though we're gonna come back down, it's too late. Uh, the harm has been done. And so I think the real question for Wall Street Journal is all the money you made on that growth by not paying and externalizing your costs, how do you plan to pay it to future generations? Not to exploit them, but to pay them back. That's the real question for the Wall Street Journal. David from Auburn is also on the line. David, I, I believe you also have a question regarding population. Thanks for calling in to Environmental Connections. Yes, and I'm glad for that prior um, caller's um, comments because they're right on. Um, yeah, I'm concerned. Um, the last figure I heard, and I don't know, that includes the decrease in China, but the increase in population of the planet is about 89 million persons a year. 89 million persons. The best thing we could do is cut that to zero. It's insane. It's absolutely insane. And how can you support that and expect them to have like developed democratic governments and all this when you have an overpopulated world? If we had one billion instead of eight billion, nearly eight billion people, it would be a lot easier to deal with the issues we are now now dealing with. But this um, having eight billion and increasing it and acting like it's a great idea is stupid. I'll just mention that neither my myself, my brother, or my sister had children of our own. My brother and his uh, wife adopted a child from Guatemala, who's now about 35 years old and really glad not to be living in Guatemala and is doing very well with a, a, uh, a shop he has, a car, car shop he has in uh, Greensboro, uh, North Carolina. But anyway, that's my comment. Now, Thank I'm you. making this comment, but by the way, where I'm talking from is um, Fort Hill Cemetery, where is uh, buried Seward and... Uh, our um, other friend, Harry, uh, uh, Harriet Beecher, Harriet, not Beecher, Harriet, uh, what's her, you know who I mean. Yes. Um, 
Tubman. Tubman. Yes. And her last name on the gravestone is Davis. Oh, wow. Well, Davis thank you so she much. For, thank you for calling in and for that insightful comment. Uh, I want to give anyone an opportunity to reply to this particular subject. Carter, yourself included, there were some additional comments brought up there. Do you have a, a response for David? I'll, I'll defer to others. I've been talking too much. Anyone else want to weigh in on that? It, I, yeah, I ahead. would just say it's nice to hear. We were just speaking about adoption. It's nice to hear a nice. caller call in and talk about that from a personal perspective. Yes, it, it really is. Now, Carter, this is somewhat related. In a capitalistic system, a capitalist system, I should say, that is always focused on growth, how do we cut the population without terrible economic consequences. Because for example, in Japan, where the population is significantly declining, how do they care for a large elderly population with the taxes being paid by a shrinking working age population? I'd love your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, actually, Japan's a perfect example. Um, wealthy investors who control messaging like the Wall Street Journal, and I think probably were pretty influential on the first caller's views, um, wanted everyone to believe the population decline is some horrible thing. Elon Musk is out there you know, crying about not being able to fill his factories with cheap workers. The reality is Japan is performing better on social economic indicators in the United States by far, even though it's been in population decline for a long time. And they're doing that through policies um, that repurpose resources to ensure uh, that a, a large sort of top heavy uh, population of retirees are either in some ways participating in the workforce or are accounting for um, methods of savings that protect that. But, but Japan shows that it's easy to be performing better in population decline than countries with growing population. Mm -hmm. One thing I'll just, I'll, I'll end by saying, population itself may be a bit of a misnomer, right? Because there is incredible growth in parts of the world and there is uh, we're moving towards fertility decline and even population decline in other parts of the world. But it's a little mis it's a little misleading because wealthy nations are doing four to five times the ecological damage of high growth nations. And so one one way to rethink it, and I'll, I completely will give all credit to Dr. Breeze Harper, who made me rethink this this idea. It's not really about population as much as about power. Uh, how are we going to exercise power over children and wealth over people who don't have wealth. And in her mind, how are historically wealthy white families going to negatively impact children of color who had nothing to do with the crisis? So maybe thinking about in terms of power, what she calls the plantation scene is, is maybe a better way even to think about it than population. Mm. Thank you, Carter. I'm a big fan of Dr. Harper's work and I'm glad that you brought that up. I appreciate that. I have a, a question for you, Marilla. As someone who is perhaps considering parenting in the future, uh, are you, you're married, yes? Yes. Okay. Are, as you and your partner consider the possibility of parenting, have you given thought to how they would have maybe less of an ecological footprint than your average bear? Yes. Okay. Yes. I would say, I mean, one, I think in these last five years of diving into consuming less plastic, mindful consumption in general, um, I think that has illustrated for me what 
something that can be done and for our children, like ways to raise children that are less impactful. I mean, it's not very exciting and flashy, but you know, cloth diapering, um, making your own baby food, you know, even something as simple as um, breastfeeding, if you can, can reduce a lot of waste in the child rearing process. And those are just a couple small, like I said, somewhat plain examples, but they're out there. And so those are all a part of our plans. And sometimes the best laid plans don't always pan out, but I have found in this journey of reducing my waste and my impact that if one solution doesn't work, say you might not be able to breastfeed, there's another solution that you might be able to work into your life that kind of offsets that. So looking at my lifestyle and seeing how we can switch little routines in raising children has been a big part of that process. I, I think cloth diapers are thrilling, personally. I mean, who wouldn't? <laughs> but you my, know. my dogs wear them, but <laughs> we'll leave that right there. Again, and <laughs> perhaps another episode. Perhaps another. There's so many episodes. Let's turn to Neely. Neely, you have teenagers, older teenagers. How do you navigate discussions around environmental responsibility with them? Uh, we try to model it, we've made some pretty big changes in our you know, personal lives and carbon footprint. Um, namely, we're able to install a geothermal heating and cooling system at our house. For about eight years, we were a one-car family, and it was a, a hybrid. And then our oldest got her driver's license, and so we bought a, a second car, and it's all electric. Um, we got rid of our gas stove, which I hated from the absolute beginning. I know every, people love their gas stoves, and I hated <laughs> our gas stove. I'm so glad to get rid of it. Um, and so like that, we do not rely on fossil fuels that are in our household. Um, my youngest is a vegetarian, and the rest of us are not, but I would say that has really uh, reduced our meat consumption as a family. And... So, so that's, that's sort of modeling it, I think, for us is, well, that's one of the ways I can handle this topic. Mm. Um, talking about it is a lot harder um, because I don't want their, like, they're, they're aware. They're, and I know there are a lot of education systems out there that, or school systems that don't, aren't allowed to talk about climate change. But fortunately, they are receiving an education and have an understanding of the climate science. Um, so we, so we talk about it occasionally, um, but I don't want to burden them. And I, I will say too, they, they participated in some marches. They've, they've participated in activism and marches and we made it fun. And so they're aware and engaged mm -hmm. and I, but I really try to let them be teenagers and kids. And E spoke before about community and the importance of community. And I just want to go back because you said during our break, I do have friends I talk to <laughs> about kids and having kids. So I, I understand it's a bit of a difficult, touchy subject, especially because people who have children often feel like they're being judged. And I mean, how do you feel about that? Do you feel like you're being judged by, you know, people like Carter, or people like who don't have children? Or is it something that you have peace with? Um, I have peace with it. Do, um, do your friends who have kids? I 
I think so, yes. Um, but there was a time when I didn't, and I also judged. Right. <laughs> and um, really, I think I have just come away from, we just have to be in humanity and in, in community with one another in compassionate, thoughtful ways, because we will only get through this together. Like, we mm -hmm. cannot... We cannot be blaming, shaming, finger pointing. Like we have to we drop that. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Carter, as we start to close up, and I do apologize for the people whose calls we were not able to get to, but we, as we said, as Marilla and I are already planning 13 more episodes about it. Yeah, don't worry. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Carter, as we start to close up, can you give me your take on like, what your one takeaway would be for our our listeners now maybe we're going to take this concept and make it like less amorphous or less philosophical and more sort of hands-on yeah i mean um you and to be clear i mean the best chance we have at the future is neely and other i think parents who care so much about their children that they will go to extreme things to protect them and i i think that that goes to my advice um the ideal of freedom really would be being in a world where we have control over the politics we're in free from others in nature there's this ideal and we can get there by by arming young women with the resources they need to plan if and when they ever choose to have a child that that child thrives and so i would tell them yes it's personal in some ways but it's also your right to give your kid a better future Fight for that right, the way you write, fight for the right to terminate a pregnancy. Fight for the right for your child to have a fair start. And that means taking the resources from the top that your kid deserves. Don't be afraid to fight for that because that'll, that'll really mean we live in a future of different people with different power relations that solve the problem that our parents, grandparents, and great-grandparents didn't solve. So mm -hmm. thanks for asking. Thank you, Carter Dillard of the Fair Start Movement. E, I'll turn to you. Any final words for our listeners today? Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I, in getting ready for this, this chat today, I was thinking a lot about the kind of like climate doom I was feeling a few years ago, especially, and, and I still feel it some days now. Um, but I've tried really hard to turn that anxiety into like action in ways of, I mean, the whole thing I've been talking about today is, is building community and being in community and just finding ways to, to connect with people and with the earth in ways that we can respect and live in reciprocity, um, I think is just something that I would encourage all people, even with children, without children, to, to continue considering. E. Turpin, Marilla Gonzalez, in 10 seconds or less, do you have any final words? I would just say to kind of take off of what E was saying and Neely was saying that making sure that we're taking care of one another and encouraging each other brings more people onto that mission. Mm -hmm. So that's a really important whether you have children or not. Beautiful way of ending. That's Marilla Gonzalez, E. Turpin, Neely Kelly, Carter Dillard. There we have it. The end of today's deep dive into the tangle of eco-anxiety and making that big decision about bringing kids into our climate conscious world. Thank you so much for everyone who has tuned in today. Whether you're filling your shopping cart with plastic, helping city folks reconnect with green spaces, or pondering parenthood amidst ecological uncertainty, this is something that affects all of us. This is something we can continue to talk about. I'm Jasmine Singer. Thank you for joining us today for Environmental Connections. <laughs>